is John DiOrio of BlackRock. Uh, we want to thank you so much for joining our call and webinar today on closed-end funds. Uh, we have a, a great call slash webinar for you. Uh, we're going to be going over what we see going on in the markets and specifically talking about ways to take advantage of that through the closed-end structure. Um, we will be taking uh, Q&A uh, via email. So the important thing to remember here is if you have a question, uh, you can go to CIFA at CIFA.com uh, and go ahead and send that question to you. So again, the email address is CIFA, C-E-F-A, at CIFA.com, and we will go ahead and answer those questions as many as we can live for you um, and uh, try to make sure that we touch on anything that's on the minds of those of you that are on the phone. Uh, with me today, uh, we have several industry participants uh, in the closed-end space that will share some of their expertise with you. We're joined by Mike Taggart, who's a Vice President and Director of Closed-End Fund Research over at Nuveen. Uh, Mike has been at Nuveen for a few years now, uh, and prior to that was Head of U.S. Closed-End Fund Research at Morningstar. And Mike has over 19 years of financial industry experience. Uh, Rennie McConney, who is Head of Global Banks at Aberdeen Asset Management. Uh, Rennie joined Aberdeen back in 2013, uh, is responsible for running their closed-end business there, and has over 29 years of industry experience. And then finally, Ed Russell, who's a managing director at Tortoise Capital Advisors. Ed joined Tortoise uh, in 2006 uh, and serves as president on the TTO fund, one of their closed-end funds, uh, and is responsible for uh, all of their uh, energy and MLP funds uh, that are out there. So I, I think we'll have a good dialogue for everybody. For those of you that are not familiar with CIFA, it's a national trade association representing the closed-end industry. Uh, we're a non-for-profit association, uh, and we're really committed to just providing education. So uh, the purpose of this call is really to give everybody an update on what we see going on in the closed-end market and really hopefully trying to answer all of uh, the questions. Uh, all of the people on the call, uh, we all with our respective firms are members of CIFA and uh, certainly hope to provide some information with you today. So with that, um, Mike, all, all the intros here finally out of the way, let's go ahead and, and get right into it and um, get into the question that people always have with closed-end funds, uh, which is where the opportunity is. So just maybe quickly to set the backdrop, um, we see a lot of people buy closed-end funds for income. Uh, for example, uh, high-yield bond closed-end funds right now have yields anywhere from 8.5% to 9%. Uh, you have closed-end muni funds out there, high-quality muni portfolios yielding 5 to 6.5%, uh, which makes their tax equivalent yield almost 9 or 10%. Um, and certainly you have equity funds out there as well. Um, discounts are another thing that we talk about. The average closed-end fund right now trades at a discount to its net asset value of about 6%. Um, equity funds are trading at about a 9% discount, and then uh, fixed-income funds at about a 4% discount. So with that backdrop, Mike, um, you guys have a wide variety of closed-end funds over at Nuveen. What are you talking about in the markets? What do you see developing? And what are some ideas to go ahead and take opportunities of what you see in the marketplace today? Yeah, great. Thanks, John. Uh, and thanks, everybody, for dialing in and listening. The, uh, you know, one of the things about opportunities, and it gets confused with closed-end funds that I want to just, from my own perspective, straighten up right away before I answer is, the difference between being, you know, looking for opportunities and being opportunistic. Because the thing is, is that in my experience with talking with advisors and talking with investors, and also I think the data that I look at backs me up on this, people get burned the most, I think, when um, they buy a closed-end fund simply because of its discount. And, you know, or they, or they don't invest in a closed-end fund because it's not trading at a wide enough discount. And I think that's kind of putting the cart before the horse for most investors. I think the best way to go about it is to say, what do I need in my portfolio? Um, am I an income-oriented investor? Am I a long-term investor? And then saying, you know, between the mutual funds and individual securities and closed-end funds and ETFs, like, what's going to meet my objective the most, the best? And, um, you know, I, instead of being opportunistic, I think the most successful um, closed-end fund investors are contrarian investors. So, for instance, like let's just take example last year. At this time, people were fretting still about you know what's going to happen to leveraged municipal funds when the Federal Reserve raises interest rates. And 
you know, last year about this time, the average national municipal fund was trading at a 6.5% discount. Over the next six months, it went down to almost a 10% discount. Right now, it's trading at about a 2.3% discount. So you could say, well, if you bought it a year ago at 6.5% and the average is trading at 2.3% discount now, there was some opportunity there. But if you just held on to the thing the whole time, the average um, total return on price over the past year for National Mini Fund is 10.3%. So you know, you were being a little contrarian there. So when I look out at opportunities now, I say not only what's kind of going on in the marketplace, but, you know, if you're an income-oriented investor, I think even at a 2.3% discount, a, a national average discount, um, the national municipal space could be interesting for you because of the, um, because of the distribution rates uh, that John mentioned before, between 5 and 6%, and before you tax, um, do the tax equivalency. Um, if you're a contrarian investor, the MLP space might be interesting to you. Um, but, you know, a lot of the funds out there that, that still kind of have a wider discount than normal are the high-yield funds, uh, convertible bond funds. Um, but you got to have to work that into your overall view of what's going on in the market. So I don't know if there's, for, for me, when I answer that question, I always try to get more information from the investors um, as to what their objectives are and what they're trying to do. Thanks, Mike. And those those are all good points. And certainly, we're, we're talking about similar things at BlackRock. You know, you you mentioned munis, um, the ability to pick up a you know a six percent yield certainly in pretty high quality assets. Uh, certainly, we think is something that's that's fairly attractive in this environment. And certainly, given the fact that maybe there's not as much fear around rising rates, we've seen those discounts narrow. Um, still, think it's a good opportunity here. To your point, given the fact that if you're in it for income and you're a long-term investor, getting that 6% coupon is, is pretty attractive. But to your point, there are risks, and the risk of it is just like the opportunity that you mentioned earlier where discounts narrow, if all of a sudden um, you know, we wake up and um, people are more worried about rising interest rates, that discount could widen out and you could experience price losses. So closed-end funds are going to give you more volatility um, that could be a positive when you when you time it correctly. Uh, it could be a negative, but I think your point on why do you own these things and being in it for income is a really important point, and we would certainly agree to look at the closed-end muni funds. The curve remains pretty steep. Uh, you're getting some pretty high-quality um, income. The other thing that you mentioned was MLPs, which, Ed, let's, let's go over to you because I want to dive into that. That's certainly been the big story of the first quarter. Um, it's kind of been risk on, risk off, and a lot of that's been based upon what's going on with the price of oil. I know you guys, uh, with your MLP investments, um, you know, track the price of oil very closely. We've seen it recover. Could you explain the factors that are driving the oil prices, and specifically, what's your what's your outlook there? Sure, I can try, and, and if I could explain the factors that drive oil prices with a high degree of accuracy, I'd, I'd be a very wealthy person. So I, I got to start with saying these are just our thoughts and on what is driving that and what needs to take place to continue to see improvement. But there, there are a number of factors that, that drive oil prices that, that cause it to be um, very difficult to predict. But in sense, uh, basically what we need to do is see supply-demand uh, factors come into balance to start to see better oil, crude oil prices uh, going forward from here. We started to see some improvement, but the math isn't th that difficult to explain, and these numbers have moved around uh, a little bit. But essentially, uh, we have excess supply of about 1.4 million barrels a day. Um, we do expect OPEC to, to continue to grow as we've seen uh, other countries come on, their production increase dramatically. So we have about a, a little over a million barrels a day of increased uh, production from OPEC. Now, we do, we do expect to see worldwide demand grow by about 1.4 million barrels a day. So we really, to get into balance, we've got to find an, um, a reduction of about another million barrels a day uh, for us to get, to get in demand. And, and to do that, uh, we have kind of the non-OPEC countries, which are, have seen kind of steady decline over a period of time. We expect that to continue, which should take about 400,000 barrels a day off the market. And then finally, the big thing is, can the United States, which is essentially the swing producer um, in the crude oil price market, can we reduce our, our um, 
supply by about 700,000 barrels a day to bring us in, in, into uh, balance. And, and we we're actually starting to see evidence that we're on track uh, to meet that goal. Um, you know, crude oil prices are still a little volatile because of, of supplies, uh, of storage supply, storage levels. But if you look at just the global demand and then the U.S. reduction, uh, it looks like we're on the path to the latter part of this year to start to see a supply and demand come in balance. And then, of course, we'll have to work off that excess supply. But our thoughts is we could generally start to see, you know, 55 to $60 crude oil in the latter part of the year. The only thing I would say is that we have been cautioning people that I think in the first part of this year, and we're almost through the first quarter, we, we generally could see some continued volatility in crude oil prices. And that's what we've seen this week, is, is crude has been pretty pretty volatile to the negative here, at least uh, um, the last couple of days. And uh, we, we certainly could, could see that continue until there's more evidence that supply and demand are coming into balance. Great. Thanks, Ed. And I just want to remind everybody, we'd love to take your, uh, your questions live here. Uh, email us at cefa at cefa.com, C-E-F-A at cefa.com. Uh, certainly want to make sure that we answer any questions that you have and that we're talking about the topics that you want to hear about. So, Rennie, we, we talked a little bit about the oil markets. The other, the other thing that's really been driving the markets in one averaging specialty is the, the emerging markets. Um, you know, is it a hard landing? Is it a soft landing for China? Weak dollar, strong dollar. Um, a lot of things playing on. Um, you know, as as we view what's going on in the emerging markets, give us a little bit of your view uh, and Aberdeen's view of what's going on in the emerging markets and also in, in the currency markets. Yeah, thank you, uh, and again, thank you everyone for dialing in to listen uh, to the uh, the call today. Um, you don't need me to tell you it's been a real roller coaster ride in the EM space. Uh, um, in a very difficult markets, whether it's uh, emerging market equities or emerging market debt, really since the uh, the infamous uh, Bernanke-inspired taper tantrum, and um, uh, it's only very recently we've started to see uh, any. Uh, any rally in, in in the EM space at all, and <clears throat> there 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 have been a number of uh, drivers to that. Um, just dealing with the the points on currency first of all. Uh, obviously, the uh, uh, the dollar up until fairly recently had been uh, pretty much a one-way trade against most emerging market currencies, uh, and uh, the the view was that U.S. rates were going up, the dollar would strengthen, and uh, that was bad for EM. And um, like a lot of times you look at the emerging market world, uh, people tend to take sweeping generalizations and, uh, and see them as fact. Um, and then, ironically, we did have the, uh, the, the first U.S. rate rise, as we, we, uh, as we all uh, heard about uh, infinitely, I would, uh, I would suggest. Um, but then almost within a month or two, uh, you have the Fed talking about maybe only two rate rises this year as opposed to four. And a number of commentators out there suggesting that actually we may not see any rate rises at all in the U.S. Uh, so the dollar uh, had a bit of wind taken out of the sails, and a number of commentators had started to talk about the fact, right, this is now the time uh, to start looking at uh, emerging markets. Uh, there's a, a, a massive... Uh, valuation gap between what we call developed markets and emerging markets and um, uh, perhaps now if the uh, the dollar is going to more tread water than um, uh, uh, than continue to strengthen against EM currencies uh, now's the time to start to reduce what essentially in the US has been very much uh, an underweight position uh, in in these markets so um, that's kind of what's been going on the currency side of things um, you know, the Aberdeen view, we're, we're, we're not a macro house per se. We're, we're very much bottom-up stock and bond pickers, uh, and that's how we construct our portfolios. Uh, but if we, if we had a macro view, as far as U.S. rates are concerned, it will be lower for longer. Uh, and um, on that basis, uh, we, we think that the period of a very strong dollar uh, against EM currencies has, has mostly run its course. And I think even some of the comments from Janet Yellen today would um, would would perhaps bear that out. Um, I, I, I'm I'm happy to go on and talk about the, the things like China, things like Brazil, if uh, if that works now. 
Um, we, we have some questions that we're getting via email, Ronnie, so why don't we go to that. So maybe just to recap, if you want to ask a question, it's sifa at sifa.com. We've talked a little bit about an asset class that's been performing really well. Mike was talking a little bit about munis. Munis has been one of the top performing asset classes. Um, so that's one thing that we've talked about, a place to get high quality income that's done well. And I, I think some interesting parallels to some of the contrarian plays that Mike also teed up around oil and whether or not we play that through MLPs or perhaps uh, emerging market equity or emerging market debt. One of the questions that we're getting is how does one decide what percentage of CEFs will play in an overall portfolio? So we started off the call talking a little bit about the role of closed-end funds and specifically the ability to enhance income. And so the first thing that I would say to this question is uh, closed-end funds certainly can enhance income in the portfolio given the use of leverage, that's going to increase your risk. But in this low yield world where a U.S. Treasury is only going to give you 2% and some global bonds would give you virtually nothing, right, where we have negative rates now, closed-end funds give you the opportunity to certainly enhance income and get higher yield within your portfolio. And that's one of the ways we see it being used at BlackRock. With that said, Mike, maybe over to you. How, how do you think about closed-end funds fitting in the portfolio and, and sizing that position, maybe to answer the question exactly? I mean, I think that's a great question, and we get it a lot. Um, you know, it, again, it, it goes back to an individual's risk tolerance. Uh, it's, it's kind of point by point. Uh, but, you know, typically, and I don't think... You know, when I was when, when I was at Morningstar, I used to think, "Wow, these things are great! Like everybody, they, why would you own anything other than closing funds?" Well, yeah, that's great given me and I don't, in, in my risk tolerance. But you know, I think now, looking at it, I, I wouldn't say I'd say most people, it's probably around 20, 25 percent, given you know the risk tolerance and given the volatility that they can handle. Um, because since most closed-end funds are leveraged. The NAVs are going to move around uh, faster than the underlying markets, uh, up and down. And then, on addition, in addition to that, um, the price swings around a little faster typically than the NAV. So you do get more volatility. But one of the things that we like to tell people is, you know, let's, let's just say, for instance, you like preferred securities, and you don't have any, you know, you like the outlook uh, for preferred securities. Um, you're thinking about buying a mutual fund, a preferred securities mutual fund. Prefer, um, and, you know, if, if you're really intent on, on, you know, that's where you want to go, then you might want to consider, you know, taking 80% uh, of what you were uh, going to allocate and put that in the mutual fund. But then maybe take 20% and say, you know, I'm going to put this in a leveraged closed-end fund. Because if my thesis does work out, then I get leveraged upside, plus all along the way, I'm getting the higher income uh, you know, from the closed-end fund structure and from the leverage. Um, so that's one way that, that, that people can kind of incorporate closed-end funds into their, um, you know, into their overall portfolio. Thanks, Mike. And I think an important point, and you started bringing this up too, is not only the allocation, but also how you do it. So those of you that aren't familiar with closed-end funds, you know, they, do, they do trade on the exchange. Some of these funds, they have great opportunities like we've been talking about, but keep in mind they're not, some of them depending upon the size of the fund might not be uh, that liquid. So the other thing I think is important to remember is also how you get into them. So if you're worried about the volatility uh, of the product, whether it be intraday or long term, one is make sure you use limit orders. That's one of the things that we talk about, which is make sure you know what price you're going to buy it at because there can be some volatility in the pricing um, you know, intraday because there's some of them don't have a ton of liquidity depending upon which one you're looking at. And two, um, you know, dollar cost averaging can be great with closed-end funds because you keep going ahead and getting that, that income stream um, and the volatility can actually help you uh, during, that, uh, during that period of time. So not only is it important about how much you buy, but also how you buy it. Um, we got another question here, and Ed, I'll, I'll turn this one to you. Um, you started talking about energy prices. Obviously, MLPs have been a big piece of the, of the closed-end market. Um, we saw a lot of closed-end fund issuance in the MLP space, you know, two years ago. Um, and then, obviously, energy prices uh, started to fall, and it started slowing last year. And there really been very little um, issuance this year. The question that we're getting is, 
help us understand MLPs. Some of them are trading at premiums. Some of them are trading at discounts. Um, there are different types of MLPs. So the question we have here, are all MLP CFs the same? Um, and, and how should you evaluate investing in MLP right now if somebody's looking to do so? Uh, well, I think in your, when you're looking at your uh, closed-end fund uh, uh, that's MLP-focused, you, you want to look at a couple things. First of all, you want to look at their focus in the MLP sector. The, the biggest thing that's kind of come up in the last uh, 12 to 18 months is the proof that all MLP uh, are not created equal and that there is inherent commodity volatility in some MLP structures. So um, if you if you have a portfolio of midstream MLP companies, the, what you've seen there is, is uh, entities that have seen uh, EBITDA growth year over year. And some of this may be surprising because you've seen, you know, the, the MLPs trade off about 30-some percent in 2015 and are still off about 10% year-to-date in terms of market sentiment or their share price. But if you look at their underlying fundamentals, uh, the, in the midstream sector, their EBITDAs are, are, are up year over year and distributions are actually up year over year. And in, in one of our funds that is midstream focused, we've seen distributable cash flow within our portfolio grow 12% year over year and then the distributions are actually up 11% year over year. So if you have a midstream focused portfolio, I think that adds a lot of strength and, and, and uh, you can have more conviction on the underlying distribution of the portfolio. Uh, the other thing that you have to look for is the leverage that's in that. Uh, when you saw MLPs trade down by the 30% last year, you saw almost all closed-end funds in the space were subject to some deleveraging. And <clears throat> the extent of that deleveraging uh, forced some funds to, to have to cut their underlying distribution. And that, so leverage is a key role. As a manager of an MLP closed-end fund, we can talk about confidence in the underlying uh, support of our distribution from our portfolio companies. What we can't control, though, is that we saw market sentiment um, shift dramatically uh, to the negative. Uh, if we would be forced to deleverage as a result of that negative market sentiment, that's really something that, that we can't predict or control. All we can try to do, and uh, us and other managers, is try to have what we think is a reasonable amount of leverage uh, that that is is prudent in this current environment. So I I would definitely look at both the focus of the strategy and the amount of leverage that's in a closed end fund. Great, thanks a lot. And, and certainly that is a, a contrarian play when you look at the energy MLP funds. Um, you know, year to date um, still underperforming. But to your point, um, you know, Ed certainly uh, coming back. But um, for those contrarians out there, um, that has been a place where you've seen some weakness, but uh, you know, Ed certainly seems like uh, there's there's some potential opportunities there. Um, so, Rennie, let's let's come back to you. One other question we had as a uh, as a follow up uh, is if you are going to be investing um, in emerging markets, you know, why why does the closed end foreign market structure make sense? Obviously, you can do it through an ETF. You can do it through a, a mutual fund. Um, it makes sense to have diversification, whatever wrapper that you use. What's the benefit of closed-end funds? I don't know if you want to take it from the equity side or the fixed-income side. Obviously, uh, choose uh, choose how you want to do that. But what's the benefit? Yeah, we 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 can discuss both briefly. Um, and you know, to um, you know, to to one of the points that was made before. Uh, I mean, obviously, yeah, we're um, we're all fans of the closed-end fund structure and the closed-end fund industry, uh, but not to the point that uh, you know, as Mike was saying before, it's a case of uh, that's the only vehicle one should use. There are places for ETFs and places for mutual funds, just as there are closed-end funds. Um, I think one of the, the more interesting parts of the closed-end fund world within emerging markets, um, uh, I mean, two things I'd focus on, uh, and this applies equally to equity or fixed income. Um, there's an awful lot of the emerging market world in equities also, or bond securities uh, that will not appear in any of the major indices. Um, therefore, if you... Uh, you buy an ETF or you, you, you buy a mutual fund that is uh, more of a hugger of the, uh, the indices than anything else, um, there's, a, there's, a, there's a big amount of the emerging market world you will just not get exposure to. Um, and so within the closed-end fund world, um, 
you know we uh, you know we will look at uh, all opportunities uh, wherever we see them in the EM space. And then what that also means uh, is the closed-end fund structure will allow us to look at some of the less liquid uh, parts of the emerging markets space. Um, uh, you know, with the, you, you know, some of the smaller markets, you definitely don't get a huge amount of liquidity. Uh, and therefore, uh, at times when uh, you see sell-offs in EM, uh, if you're in a mutual fund, sometimes the fund manager can only sell off the most liquid parts of his or her portfolio and uh, you're left with uh, a very unbalanced portfolio. Uh, the closed-end fund structure, where you have that permanent capital, uh, is uh, a lot more suited to investing in some of these le less liquid parts of the market. That over time, you know, we believe if you pick the right stocks and pick the right bonds, um, you know, can provide uh, uh, very handsome returns. So those, those are kind of the two areas I'd focus on just in terms of looking at the, uh, the structure of the closed-end fund world and why it can be quite suitable for uh, gaining exposure to emerging markets. Thanks, Rennie. Uh, and again, everybody on the call, it's CIFA at CIFA.com. Please uh, email us your questions, C-E-F-A at CIFA.com. And, you know, Rennie, you, you were bringing that up. If for, for those of you that want to use the CIFA website, CIFA.com, if you go to asset classes, which is over on the left-hand side, uh, you could go ahead and get a breakdown of what closed-end funds have done for different time periods. And, and ready to your point, one of the best-performing uh, sectors out there have been emerging market funds. As I look at the year-to-date LIPR performance for the categories, uh, emerging markets debt funds are up 4.4%, and emerging market funds uh, in aggregate are up 2.69% to, uh, to Mike's uh, question earlier um, around thinking about contrarians. Obviously, these were hard-hit areas last year, but emerging market debt and emerging market equity uh, certainly seeing a comeback here. Uh, and you can see that on CIFA.com uh, on how all of these different closed-end categories uh, are performing. We have another question in here, which maybe I'll, I'll start to take a, take a stab at it, and then, Mike, you might have a, um, a, a point on it. We, we do not have these at BlackRock, but I'll, I'll give you my point of view on it. And the question is, how do you regard closed-end funds fund the funds? There are only a few when they trade at discounts to net asset value, but they also have a management fee on top of the large fees that individual funds have. And so um, our view is uh, the fund of funds uh, certainly can provide some nice diversification. A lot of people may not want to go ahead and um, go out and purchase a variety of different closed-end funds. So I, I think the one benefit uh, that you certainly get when you buy any closed fund, uh, any fund of funds, whether it be a closed-end fund of funds or a hedge fund fund of funds, is you get that diversification uh, of owning a bunch of different products which, which can help. Um, I think you obviously have to evaluate the manager and whether or not the manager is adding um, alpha and value, um, adding out performance uh, to that product to justify the fees, so that's a, a fair point. Uh, but certainly there are some closed-end funds out there where the manager tries to move around, take advantage of different idiosyncratic opportunities that happen in the closed-end market. And so given the fact that the closed-end market is and can be inefficient, um, certainly we think these funds make sense. Uh, Mike, uh, you guys have a lot of different closed-end funds. I know you talked to some of the providers that run these fund of funds as well. Anything that you'd want to add to that? Yeah, I mean, I think I think we all probably know the know the, the teams and the people that run these funds, and they're all really smart guys. And you know, I in my mind, going back to like your very first question and my my pontification on being opportunistic versus being contrarian, those are the guys who can be opportunistic because they can look. They their whole job is to look at the space all day long, and that's really what it takes to be opportunistic is you can't just like say, I'm going to be opportunistic and buy this and come back three months later and look at it again. Like you need to look at it every day. Um, the fees can be an issue. Um, I, I realize that, you know, I say, I tell people, you know, look at the uh, NAV returns because that's going to be net of fees and, and, and decide for yourself uh, where, where they're adding value. And, you know, to your point um, earlier too, it, it's about the price volatility, right? So, um, yeah, they can trade at discounts, but if you're getting the distribution and you're reinvesting it, you know, uh, over time, um, then you're going to be taking advantage of that discounted price. But, you know, um, I think, yeah, the diversification angle and basically turning over your closed-end fund management to, you know, to a professional 
um, you know, has its merits. So, thanks, Mike. And I think an important point to make there for everybody on the phone too is, um, you know, when when I think all of us evaluate closed-end funds, certain closed-end funds can trade at a discount. Just because they're trading at a discount doesn't mean they're a buy or sell opportunity. I think it's important also that you look at where the fund is historically traded. Um, if the fund is currently trading at a um, you know, small discount, but it's historically traded at a premium to its net asset value, then that small discount actually might be a pretty good buying opportunity. Other funds may trade at double-digit discounts, but have traded there for a while, and maybe that's not a buying opportunity. So uh, one of the things we caution you to look at is just make sure you understand the, the trend of the product uh, if you're just buying solely on discounts. And I think, Mike, your point earlier was the right one, which is that should just be one thing that you look at, but shouldn't be the lead thing. I think we all probably would agree with that. So we're talking about discounts, but actually we have an interesting question here that came in from email. Again, it's cfat.com to ask a question, which is, should an investor always sell a closed-end fund when it trades at a premium? I'll put that out to the panel. Um, should you sell your closed-end when it hits a premium? Uh, and I guess perhaps maybe buy a different one that's at a discount. Uh, what is everybody's thoughts on that? Well, I'm, well, I mean, I'll start. Um, so I, I did a lot of work on this when I was uh, in my former job at Morningstar looking at this. And, you know, do you – but my part, my view was do you buy a closed-end phone when it's trading at a premium? And, you know, up to about a 10% premium, it really didn't make that much of a difference. Um, when you got to, like, 10 25% premium, yeah, you started to make a difference. And beyond that, like – you know, you didn't really want to get that, get into it. But there's a couple things, you know, as I've kind of matured and grown in this space. One is um, income. The distribution rate at price uh, for a lot of uh, unleveraged, say, closed-end funds is significantly higher than what you could get in any other vehicle that's similarly invested. And a lot of times, in order to get that equivalency, the closed-end fund would have to trade at, like, a 40% premium. Um, so you can kind of say, well, would people actually buy it at a 40% premium? Maybe not, but that's where the equivalency between current yield on, on the other vehicle and distributionary price would be struck. Um, and again, when you're talking about selling something at a premium, I think you have to take into uh, account the consequences and you know what your long-term thinking is. Because over a market cycle, most closed-end funds will trade at both a premium and a discount. Um, at some point in the cycle. So, you know, do you want to sell a pre premium, pay the, t pay the tax consequences, and get into something with the discount? That's kind of your call, but yeah, you do have to take that into consideration. Thanks, Mike. So maybe a question, Mike, back to you, and maybe, Ed, do you want to you take this first? Um, so we have a question here from Rick, and um, the, the question from Rick uh, is, can you suggest some metrics that are available that will enable us to gauge the risk of a dividend cut in a given CEF. So, you know, maybe maybe if, uh, Ed, you, you talked a little bit about MLPs. I know a lot of people out there are concerned with declining oil prices and MLPs paying out higher yields. Um, are we going to see distribution cuts? You started talking about that a little bit earlier. Um, what could Rick look at there if he's trying to evaluate if the dividend is going to be cut? And then, Mike, maybe, you know, you started talking about munis. Maybe you want to mention uh, what one could look at in the, in the muni space because I know there's some, some there's nice telltale signs there as well. Sure. Um, well, for if I was going to analyze the closed-end funds, I'd start first on the at, the at the portfolio level by looking at what I mentioned, which would be leverage in the underlying closed-end fund. Look at their their debt metrics to see you know how much room they have there, because that that's going to be the one thing that could cause them deleveraging could cause any fund to to be forced to cut its distribution regardless of the performance of the underlying portfolio. So uh, negative market sentiment uh, can, can have a big effect there. So you want to look at their their ratios and and, uh, and how much room they have and compare funds via the amount of leverage that they have. And then if you want to look at the actual holdings in the portfolio, um, you'd want to look again at, at the, the nature of the underlying holdings. Are they where are they focused within my sector, which would be the MLP space? Are they um, in areas where they have seen distribution cuts, such as upstream or coal or, or other um, commodity-sensitive holdings? Uh, or are they, and if, 
if you look at the underlying portfolio itself and look at its, its dividend yield. So a general rule, and, and others could have an opinion on this, but if you're looking at an MLP that has uh, current yield that's over 10%, the market is saying there that there's a, a high degree of likelihood that they could see a cut in their distribution. That, that doesn't mean it's going to happen. That just means that the, the market is is thinking that, that that's a strong possibility. So look at the underlying uh, portfolio, look at the yield in that portfolio, and that can help gauge the certainty of the distribution that comes from the portfolio names. So that, that's essentially the two items that I would look at in the MLP space. And then, um, yeah, as you mentioned, like uh, municipals, um, whether it's national or state, you know, any kind of fund that's only that's paying out an income-only distribution where they're not including any sort of capital gains or any sort of return of capital, the, the number one thing to look at is the earnings. So, and you can look in the financials, and you just have to annualize or whatever. But if, uh, let's say a fund is distributing uh, a nickel a month, and it's earning six cents a month, right? That's a that, that's a good sign. Um, but you know, if it's if it's paying out five cents uh, a month and it's earning four and a half cents a month, that might not that that's not a good sign. It's not a reason to necessarily panic though, because the other thing that you want to look at is uh, the undistributed net investment income, uh, which is it's been defined described in various ways. I used to describe it as a as kind of the cookie jar, right, um, or the insurance, you know, the uh, the rainy day fund, if you will. So um, you want to look at you know, does it have a positive uni balance that could uh, make up for any shortfall in earnings over, um, in, and in how long could it do that? So, I mean, I think those are two of the key uh, factors. One thing I do want to caution people on, and I think, John, uh, a lot of people, in my experience, um, use earnings and uni inappropriately, is they, they start using them for funds that have managed distribution policies. Um, and, um, you know, they say, oh, this fund has a negative uni balance. And it's a, you know it's a U.S. covered call fund or something where that doesn't really have any bearing on on the fund's distribution at all. But when it comes to income only distributions and especially in the municipal space, um, earnings coverage and uni uh, balances are important. Thanks, Mike. I think that's an important point. And you know one of the things that we've been talking about in in, in munis is. Yeah, you definitely got to do the research. You definitely got to look at what the fund's earning, what's the uni balance. Um, for those of you that are looking to do the research, as Mike mentioned, you can find that on most providers' websites. So if you go out to blackrock.com under our closed-end section or Nuveen or any other provider of munis, you'll be able to find that. You know, and, and keep in mind, earnings may come down, right? I, I think we've had a lot of people that have missed out on, on a, some pretty good returns in munis because they're worried about distributions getting cut because they're seeing earnings come down. And, and that's somewhat natural, unfortunately, because we're in this low-yield environment where bonds are getting called away. And obviously, when you reinvest those bonds, uh, you're going to be reinvesting them at lower rates. But to the point earlier that we made, when you're thinking about investing in a, in a, in a muni fund on the closed-end side that's currently yielding 5.5%, 6%, think about that compared to where you'd be able to buy that bond in the open market. A lot of muni bonds right now are, are yielding only, you know, two, two and a half percent. So you're almost doubling the yield that you'd be able to get on buying the stuff in the open market. So even if the yield does come down a little bit, um, as long as you're a long-term investor, I think you have to take into account what your time horizon is and um, also shouldn't over overthink um, the opportunity that might that might exist depending upon what your, your time horizon is. Um, so we don't have any more questions here. Uh, I'll give everybody an opportunity here to, to ask one more question if you'd like. Um, it's CEFA, C-E-F-A, at CEFA.com. Uh, and then maybe we'll, we'll close with each of you. We'll see if we get any other questions in, but we'll close with each of you just on kind of a closing statement. Uh, a lot of people on the call might be using closed-end funds uh, in their, their daily portfolios. Some people might be new to the closed-end fund market. So maybe, Rennie, if you just want to start, um, we'll start with you on, on just kind of one takeaway of uh, what your message would be to anybody out there that's thinking about investing in closed-end fund, whether it be an opportunity you want to talk about or just um, something that you've been concentrated on in, in the market. Yeah, I, I think there's uh, an interesting asset allocation question that uh, investors can ask themselves at the moment. You've, up until the last few weeks, you've seen a, 
a very, very significant outperformance of developed markets uh, against emerging markets. Um, you've seen the first U.S. rate rise. Um, you, you've seen emerging markets underperform. Um, but uh, when you look at the economic performance of uh, the vast majority of these markets, it remains very solid. And if you if you look out uh, over the next three, four, five years and try and assess where you're going to continue to see significant economic growth, uh, our view would be that the EM space is definitively a place you should look at. Now, I talked about sweeping generalizations earlier on. Uh, and I don't want to be guilty of, uh, of, of making those same generalizations. Clearly, you have to be very uh, careful of the, 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 the stocks or bonds you pick or the managers you pick to run those stock and bond portfolios for you um, because not all emerging markets are born equal. Um, you know, we, there was comments earlier on in this call about uh, oil prices. I mean, some emerging markets have been devastated by the collapse in oil prices, and Russia is the most obvious one that comes to mind. Uh, whether other emerging markets like India or, or, or Indonesia that have taken advantage of the correction in oil prices to uh, uh, reduce fuel subsidies and Im improve their fiscal positions uh, dramatically. So. Um, you know, one needs to uh, take account of those things. Um, Brazil and China are, are two countries that are a lot in the headlines at the moment. Um, you know, Brazil, we, we've watched this uh, Petrobras story uh, play out. Um, it's still probably got quite a long way to go. Uh, the Brazilian market has rallied very significantly recently on the basis that um, uh, you know, we are going to see some political change in Brazil, and on the basis that what we're actually now seeing in Brazil is that the institutions of the state uh, uh, are endeavouring to uphold the rule of law, uh, and that's been seen as a positive thing. Uh, I suspect um, the Brazilian market's probably run a little bit too far too fast. Uh, but, um, you know, you've seen some significant changes there. And, of course, the other 800-pound gorilla in the room when you're talking about emerging markets is China. Uh, fundamentally, uh, we believe that the Chinese will manage uh, the move to a consumer-driven economy to slower growth rates. We don't necessarily believe that the Chinese economy is growing at 65 to 7%, uh, but certainly, you know, 45 to 5% is... Um, uh, is more credible. Uh, it was interesting, um, you know, uh, we were talking about oil markets before, um, you know, Chinese oil imports were actually up 5% in 2015, and it goes to the point that uh, Ed was making before that, you know, we, we have a real supply problem here, more so than we have a demand problem. Um, anyway, so a number of different cross-currents there, but I think the most important thing to think about as a, an investor is whether the time of being overweight U.S. equities, overweight U.S. fixed income, uh, which up until quite recently has been a great place to be, maybe the whole discussion about international diversification is something that uh, investors need to give more thought to now. And in, within the EM, EM world, uh, I think the closed-end fund industry certainly provides part of that solution in terms of terms of offering investment opportunities uh, going forward. Thanks, Rennie. Um, so we do, we do have one more question in here uh, before we go to Ed and Mike, maybe for a quick recap. And it's, if you can buy a fund at a discount, should an investor care if the dividend exceeds the earnings? Uh, so Mike, maybe you want to take a stab at that one? Uh, yeah, sure. I mean, it, that, that's very similar to... Um, well, so I go back to when I was an equity analyst, and you'd see, you know, yields on a uh, go up significantly um, because people on, on a on a on a stock that people own because of the dividend, and all of a sudden the yield just starts going up, and that's because people are expecting a dividend cut, right? So a lot of times in closed-end funds, if people start to see that earnings are below the distribution, they do the same thing with the price. They start selling out of it. The price starts going down, and uh, and therefore you get a large, you know, a larger discount. So at some point in there, you do have to ask yourself, well, you know, is the discount more than um, more than pricing in 
uh, a, a likely distribution cut. And you know, frankly, that's true. A lot of times, a lot of times it is. The market does kind of overshoot. So, yeah, I mean, I think if if all of a sudden you see a fund trading at a at a relatively large discount away from the rest of its peers, um, and its earnings are below its distribution, um, then yeah, you might want to buy it. Well, you might consider buying it because you think that that's already, that the distribution cuts already being priced in. Great. Any closing comments for you before we uh, before we wrap here? I mean, um, the I think for most closed end fund investors, especially if you're new to the space, you know, closed end funds are a relatively inefficient market, which is why we get the discounts and premiums. And I think that in any inefficient market, a little bit of education goes a long way. And so I like to tell people, you know, learn, learn as much as you can about closed end funds before you invest in them, not just your closed-end fund, but, you know, if, if you're interested in, um, say, MLP funds, you know, look at all the MLP closed-end funds that are out there. And like Ed was saying, you know, figure out different leverage, what kind of parts of the market they're in, um, and kind of where have they traded historically. And just by looking at that data and gathering it for a group of funds, you should be able to kind of start narrowing your search a little bit. Um, and again, one of the things, one of the biggest mistakes I've seen investors make with closed-end funds is simply buying them for the discount. And I think, again, with a little bit of education, uh, most people wouldn't do that and they'd have better uh, returns as a result. So that's my final say. Thanks, Mike. And we did get another question in. Um, I'll take this one. Um, and it's not, it's not any of the funds that are represented by people on this call. but. It's a question from someone that's got 60% of an IRA and, and a closed-end fund. The ticker symbol is BGB, uh, which is a, uh, a Blackstone GSO strategic credit fund, uh, which uh, looks like it invests a lot in senior loans. And it's saying uh, that it's down 20%. I, I bring this up because I, I think it's an important point to make, which is a lot of people don't look at the returns of closed-end funds. So just for this, this caller or this person that emailed in, I'm looking at this this fund online, and and the fund uh, on a price performance running one year is actually down nine percent. Now, keep in mind this fund does pay an attractive income level; it pays over a nine percent distribution yield. And um, I think it's an important uh, point, uh, and something that we typically see a lot of confusion with in in closed-end funds is a lot of times on your statements that income, specifically if you're taking the distribution will show up as negative price performance. So this is a really important point for everybody that's currently invested in closed-end funds. A lot of times the brokerage statements are just wrong um, because they will count the yield as coming out of the price, and so that will show up as the price being down. Uh, so in, in this instance, you receive that 9%, uh, but it's showing as a negative return. So um, it's just a really important point. I, I'm not going to talk about a Blackstone fund since it's not part of our uh, BlackRock and uh, I don't think Nuveen or anybody from Tortoise or Aberdeen would want to talk about it either. So you should cont uh, contact your uh, your your Blackstone uh, company to try to find some more information about that. But uh, the fund is not down 20%. Uh, you need to take into account the total return of the fund. Uh, you're taking into account the dividend as a loss. You received that dividend. So I think that's an important point to make just for everybody. And it's, it's, a, it's a typical misperception that we see about closed-end funds. So I thought it was an important one. Uh, to address. So, Ed, let's go to you for the last comment here. Um, uh, I just want to take this opportunity to thank everybody for being on the call. Uh, that's CIFA at CIFA.com. Uh, that website uh, and email address is always open. So if you do have other questions that you didn't think of uh, today, uh, please email CIFA at CIFA.com or go to CIFA.com for information. Again, we'll, we're always happy to uh, give information to uh, people that want to find information about closed-end funds. CIFA at CIFA.com. Ed, uh, the, the last uh, closing point on, on your part. Sure. I'll just address a question that we get from a lot of investors in our closed-end funds. Is, you know, we, we've seen MLPs under a lot of pressure and seen a lot of negative market sentiment since uh, September of 2014, and they're questioning whether the MLP structure itself is even uh, can even survive this. And I think it's important to go back to a couple of points that, we, we have seen uh, some factors put pressure and exposed commodity sensitivity uh, or expose some weaknesses in the, in the MLP sector, but 
at Tortoise, we've always talked about the MLPs having critical assets to our economy, which we still hold true, but we've also followed that up with saying that, that they're not bulletproof and that we've seen some events such as uh, extreme uh, volatility of crude, in crude prices. We've seen that's led to concerns over um, con their uh, customer credit risk and also concerns over bankruptcies within the expiration and production area. And all those things do have an effect on specific MLPs, but it's important today, I think, in terms of looking at your, your manager to see how they're navigating through those, those challenges. Um, the, the MLP sector uh, we, has been, unfortunately, under pressure uh, consistently, and what's happened is they've taken these specific events and, and even some high-profile concerns such as Kinder Morgan, uh, which is not an MLP right now but still associated with the space, cutting its distribution, and the market has applied that risk throughout the entire MLP sector. And we would propose that there are some MLPs out there that um, particularly, say, a natural gas, a long-haul natural gas pipeline that is not really being affected by crude price volatility that we've seen over the last uh, 18 months. Um, so if you can look at the individual companies and assess their strengths and their risks, uh, do they have excess distribution coverage? What is their growth expectations? There's a number of metrics out there that you'd want to look at. And I go back to my, my earlier points is that if you look at the, for example, the characteristics of one of our, our closed-end fund portfolios, I think a lot of people would be surprised to see that their EBITDA is, is up uh, well over 10% year over year. The distributions are up 10% year over year. You wouldn't apply those metrics to the entire MLP space, but it's important to note that not all of them are being affected uh, equally by these concerns, and the market has had a tendency to apply those concerns uh, throughout the, the MLP space. So we certainly hope that crude price volatility starts to settle down, and when we do see that, I think mar uh, market sentiment could turn very quickly, and at that point, I think the, the uh, larger investment-grade um, midstream MLPs will start to see uh, improvement in their share price. Great. Thanks, Ed. Um, and I'd like to take this opportunity to thank the, all the panelists, uh, Ed, Rennie, and Mike. Thanks uh, so much for being on. And uh, we want to thank everybody that, uh, that dialed in. Uh, we appreciate your time uh, and uh, tuning in to hear more about closed-end funds. Uh, there will be a replay for this call. So for anybody that uh, you know that may have missed it that wants to hear some more information, uh, we'll, there will be a replay. You can go ahead and find that on CIFA.com. Uh, and for all of you, thanks for joining in. I hope everybody has a great day. Thanks and take care. Thanks, John.